Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, The Power of Your Exercise Mindset by Jenny Tights. Then, Investigation Finds Misconduct by Alzheimer's Researcher by Nidhi Subarabaran and Joseph Walker. Stephen Davidoff-Solomon has an article, Don't Hire My Anti-Semitic Law Student. Ben Zimmer wrote, Unavailable, Strapped for Cash, or going wild. And we'll follow that up with an article by Alex Janin, The Secret to Living to 100. It's not just healthy habits. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, The Power of Your Exercise Mindset. If exercise seems like a great idea, but you can never keep up a routine, it's worth considering your exercise mindset. Defined by psychologists as core assumptions that shape our behavior and reality. While it's long been known that mindsets can make a big difference in academic performance and navigating stress, evidence is mounting that targeting some of our most ingrained habitual beliefs and replacing them with more adaptive ones can rev up our ability to keep ourselves healthy. Whether they're true or false, mindsets have an impact, says Dr. Alia Crum, who runs the Stanford Mind and Body Lab. They change what we pay attention to, what we're motivated to do, how we feel emotionally about what we're doing, and what we decide to prioritize. For instance, maybe you've tried to shame or scare yourself into going to the gym by recounting the health risks of not moving. Or perhaps you've aimed to get active by thinking of the long-term upsides of exercise. In addition to promoting longevity, exercising regularly is 1.5 times more effective than medication for easing mild to moderate depression, stress, and anxiety. Yet when it comes to exercise, reminding ourselves that something is good for us isn't always enough to get us to comply. That may be why fewer than 28% of Americans meet the exercise guidelines set by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, which call for 150 minutes of physical activity every week. While the intention of publishing more stringent exercise guidelines is to encourage people to be more active, they have a tendency to backfire. We have evidence showing that the whole intention of these higher guidelines is to motivate people to meet them, but it's actually having the opposite effect, according to Crum. One study found that college students and university staff who received more flexible exercise recommendations were significantly more inclined to increase their physical activity. What inspires exercise motivation, explains Crum, a former NCAA Division I athlete, are your beliefs about whether what you're doing is adequate and how you view the process of exercise. Do you think of it as fun and social or boring and painful? In a landmark study back in 2007, 
Crum experimented with the power of mindset on a group of hotel room attendants who spent their days vacuuming and changing sheets, but didn't necessarily consider themselves active. When researchers congratulated half the group for not only meeting but exceeding the Surgeon General's recommendation for an active lifestyle, a month later, that group showed a decrease in blood pressure and weight compared with a, cro- with a control group who didn't receive positive encouragement. Of course, perception alone isn't everything. Be aware of your mindset, then work to change that to a more adaptive way of thinking in addition to doing activity, advises Crum. A study she co-authored with Dr. Octavia Zart involving more than 61,000 Americans found that regardless of how much exercise people got, those who perceived themselves as less active than their peers were significantly more likely to die than those who thought they were more active. When we tell people, hey, you're doing a lot right now, that motivates them to do more, Crumb said. In contrast, thinking about exercise in all-or-nothing terms, I need at least 30 minutes or there's no point, is the enemy of consistency. You want to adapt the mindset that any and all movement is worth it and everything counts, says Michelle Seegar, a sustainable change researcher at the University of Michigan and the author of The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Exercise in Eating and Exercise. Even a quick walk in the middle of a hectic day is a deposit toward your well-being. If that doesn't resonate with your perfectionist tendencies, consider whether those tendencies have worked for you. Though rigid standards may help some people, for many others they backfire, creating a vicious cycle of failure. Besides bringing generosity and flexibility to how you view your movement, changing your why for getting active can also help sustain your motivation. Rather than seeing workouts as a way to burn calories or lose weight, which can perpetuate self-criticism, it can help to focus on more immediately gratifying reasons to do it, like clearing your mind or feeling less stressed, according to Seagar. Approaching the process of exercise as something that's appealing and even indulgent makes a difference. The key, says researchers, is to focus on the pleasure that exercise can bring then pick an activity that is actually rewarding. People tend to say that health is their primary motivator for exercise, but that's actually a poor driver of lasting motivation, says Seagar, who found that changing her mindset helped her to keep up her running routine in all sorts of weather. Instead of feeling annoyed when it began to pour when I was running, I got curious about what it would be like to move in the rain, she explains. That helped her savor the experience. Framing exercise as appealing even helps to motivate people who might actually find physical activity painful, such as those with osteoarthritis in the knees. Richard Bernstein, a Michigan Supreme Court justice, was born blind and lives with ongoing chronic pain after a serious accident. Yet he has completed 25 marathons and an Ironman triathlon, even with a notably demanding work schedule. When asked how he does it, he acknowledges that it all began by changing his mindset. I always had a view that athletics was something I could never be able to do. It was for the cool kids. It was for the leaders, he said. 
describing feeling sidelined during grade school physical education classes. Then he was invited to join a meetup with Achilles International, an organization that empowers people with disabilities to participate in athletic opportunities. First, he doubted whether this was something he was physically capable of, but the nonprofit's founder, Dr. Dick Traum, assured him that this is totally something you could do. As Bernstein found joy in running with others, his miles slowly mounted, and he fell into marathon training, which sparked the drive to do even more. Reaching a fitness goal was the last thing on my mind, he says. Exercise became associated with the delight of being outdoors and the camaraderie of others, and he found that the process sparks a cycle of flourishing. Athletics is almost spiritual in a way. It allows you to be strong. It allows you to push forward. It allows you to find that inner strength. The more I move, the better I actually feel. And now... Investigation finds misconduct by Alzheimer's researcher. A scientist who advises Cassava Sciences, a biotech under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission, engaged in poor misconduct in his drug and other research, according to an investigation by his employer, the City of University of New York. The university investigation also found evidence highly suggestive of deliberate scientific misconduct by Ho Yan Wang, a medical professor at the CUNY School of Medicine at the City College of New York. He co-wrote multiple journal articles with Cassava supporting the promise of its experimental Alzheimer's drug called Simufalam. Wang did not provide a CUNY investigation primary data from experiments or research notebooks that would show how he and other authors arrived at the conclusions in their journal articles, according to the university's investigations report, which the Wall Street Journal reviewed. Wang is an outside scientific advisor to Cassava. Cassava's senior vice president, Lindsay Burns, a frequent co-author with Wang, shared responsibility for errors and misconduct in multiple studies, the report said. CUNY hasn't released the report to date, but the copy reviewed by the journal was verified by a person familiar with the investigation. CUNY's findings were earlier reported by the journal Science. Shares in Cassava, which had soared in 2021 on the prospects for the Alzheimer's drug have recently fell 15% due to the news. Cassava said it wasn't involved in the university investigations, its employees weren't interviewed, and the university has no legitimate basis on which to make accusations against the company or its employees. The company said work from other institutions has shown that its experimental drug interacts with a protein called filament A, thought to play a role in Alzheimer's disease. Wang said the report makes no conclusive findings of data manipulation, consistent with what I've been saying for two years. Burns, through Cassava, declined to comment. Cassava of Austin, Texas, had ridden from obscurity to become a favored stock among individual investors intrigued by the prospects for its treatment for the memory-robbing disease Alzheimer's. 
In August 2021, two physicians who were shorting cassava stock said in a public petition to the Food and Drug Administration that research studies by Wang and Burns were faulty and showed signs of manipulation, including images that appeared altered by Photoshop or similar software. The SEC is investigating claims of research manipulation in studies involving the drug, the journal reported back in November 2021. The Justice Department is separately conducting a criminal probe, according to people familiar with the investigations. Also that fall, the United States Department of Health and Human Services Office of Research Integrity contacted City College of New York, which is part of CUNY, about multiple allegations of research misconduct that the National Institutes of Health had received. The NIH had had awarded at least $20 million in grants to Cassava and its academic collaborators since 2015 for drug development. A committee of faculty at CUNY examined over 10 months allegations of research misconduct leveled at Wang, according to the report. The committee looked at research Wang did on Cassava's drug candidate, as well as other neuroscience studies. The researcher provided some images from the research, but most weren't cropped, and it couldn't match them to the publications, according to the committee's report. The committee also said Wang failed to give the underlying raw data from the research. The the probe showed long-standing and agrarious misconduct in data management and said Dr. Wang's work remains highly questionable. Wang didn't provide original data and records, limiting the committee's ability to objectively assess the allegations, the report said. And now, don't hire my anti-Semitic law students. I teach corporate law at the University of California, Berkeley, and I'm an advisor to the Jewish Law Students Association. My students are largely engaged and well-prepared, and I regularly recommend them to legal employers. But if you don't want to hire people who advocate hate and practice discrimination, don't hire some of my students. Anti-Semitic conduct is nothing new on university campuses, including here at Berkeley. Last year, Berkeley's Law Students for Justice in Palestine asked other student groups to adapt a bylaw that banned supporters of Israel from speaking at events. It excluded any speaker who expressed and continued to hold views or host, sponsor, promote events in support of Zionism, the apartheid state of Israel, and the occupation of Palestine. Nine student groups adopted the bylaw. Signers included the Middle Eastern and North African Law Students Association, the Queer Caucus, and the Women of Berkeley Law. The bylaw caused an uproar. It was rightly criticized for creating Jew-free zones. Our dean, a diehard liberal, and admirably condemned it but said free speech principles tied his hands. The campus groups had the legal right to pick or exclude speakers based on their views. The bylaw remains and 11 other groups subsequently adopted it. You don't need an advanced degree to see why this bylaw is wrong. For millennia, Jews have prayed next year in Jerusalem, capturing how central the idea of a homeland is to Jewish identity. 
by excluding Jews from their homeland after Jews had already endured thousands of years of persecution, these organizations are engaging in anti-Semitism and dehumanizing Jews. They didn't include Jewish law students in the conversation when circulating the bylaw. They also singled out Jews for wanting what we all should have, a homeland and haven from persecution. The student conduct at Berkeley is part of the broader attitude against Jews on university campuses that made the recent massacre possible. It is shameful and has been tolerated for too long. It's time for the adults to take over, and that includes law firms looking for graduates to hire. The law firm Winston & Strawn revoked an employment offer for a student at New York University Law School who wrote an open letter that pointedly refused to condemn Hamas's attack. The letter denounced Israel instead and and asserted that its regimen of state-sanctioned violence created the conditions that made resistance necessary. The NYU Law School dean had issued a tepid response to the massacres, But after the student's anti-Israel screed caused an uproar, he made a second, more forceful statement condemning Hamas's attack. Legal employers in the recruiting process should do what Winston and Strawn did. Treat these law students like the adults they are. If a student endorses hate, dehumanization, or anti-Semitism, don't hire them. When students face consequences for their actions, they straighten up. If you are a legal employer, when you interview students from Berkeley, Harvard, NYU, or any other law school this year, ask them what organizations they belong to. Ask if they support discriminatory bylaws or other acts and resolutions blaming Jews and Israelis for the Hamas massacre. If a student endorses hatred, it isn't only your right, but your duty not to hire them. Do you want your clients represented by someone who condones these monstrous crimes? And now, unavailable, strapped for cash, or going wild. Out of pocket is the phrase. What does it mean to be out of pocket? There are at least a few different ways to interpret that phrase, and which generation you're in may play a large part in how you define it. For those who are millennials or older, saying you'll be out of pocket can simply mean that you'll be away from work and unavailable. But for members of Generation Z, being out of pocket can suggest acting chaotically or inappropriately. Cross-generational confusion about out of pocket is on display in a viral video on TikTok that has amassed approximately 2 million views since it was recently posted. In the video, TikToker at Notahand says, my boss, every time she's going to be out of the office for a portion of the day, not the whole day, but like for a doctor's appointment or something, she'll say, so I'm going to be out of pocket today from 1 to 2. And it cracks me up every time because it's like, what you going to get up to, girl? This isn't the first time the generational divide has been noted. As a Washington Post quiz on Generation Z office speak last December often flagged the expression as a potential pitfall in the workplace. Long before out-of-pocket became a bone of contention online, the phrase had yet another more literal meaning. 
The word pocket originally referred to a small pouch formed as a diminutive of poke, an old French word for bag. The meaning narrowed to further refer to pouches sewn on garments by the 15th century, and pocket took on a financial sense based on its place on its use as a place to tuck away money. By the late 17th century, paying out of pocket could mean using up one's own personal funds. In a 1679 account of a murder trial, an informant denies receiving an award, stating that he is 700 pounds out of pocket. Later on, the whole phrase could be used as an adjective for outlaying cash with out-of-pocket expenses appearing in print as early as 1828. While out-of-pocket long referred to being financially strapped, the meaning of unavailable or out-of-reach turns out to be surprisingly old. A 1908 short story by William Sidney Porter, who used the pen name O'Henry, includes the line, Just now she is out-of-pocket, and I shall find her as soon as I can. Porter, who hailed from North Carolina, may have been reflecting his southern dialect. The Dictionary of American Regional English, based on fieldwork conducting in the late 1960s, found that the unavailable meaning was chiefly known in the South. That meaning started to become part of American office culture in the 1970s, right around when a new colloquial sense of the phrase was bubbling up. Slang expert Jonathan Green has tracked how out-of-pocket came to refer to acting wildly, especially when used among black Americans. Green cites the work of the social anthropologists Christina and Richard Milner, who published Black Players, a groundbreaking ethnography of San Francisco's pimps and sex workers in 1972. The book's glossary says the phrase refers to speech or behavior which is unacceptable, out of line, not right, adding that it derives from pool room slang, since on the pool table shooting a ball out of pocket causes the player to lose his turn. This unruly sense has cropped up in hip-hop lyrics at least since 1990, when Oakland's Dangerous Dame rapped, Some Punk Get Out of Pocket. That this usage is being identified as general as Generation Z slang illustrates how expressions originating among black Americans are frequently subject to cultural appropriation. Among the thousands of comments on TikTok about the phrase, one user summed up the debate well. Words can have multiple meanings and situational context matters. It's kind of just like how language works. And now, the secret to a living to 100. It's not just healthy habits. Exercise and eating well can help, but good genes matter more the older you get. If you want to live to your 100th birthday, healthy habits can only get you so far. Research is making clearer the role that genes play in living to very old age. Habits like getting enough sleep, exercising, and eating a healthy diet can help you stave off disease and live longer. Yet when it comes to living beyond 90, genetics starts to play a trump card, says researchers study aging. Some people have this idea, if I do everything right, diet and exercise, I can live to be 150. And that's really not correct, says Robert Young, 
who directs a team of researchers at the nonprofit scientific organization Gerontology Research Group. About 25% of your ability to live to 90 is determined by genetics, says Dr. Thomas Pearls, a professor of medicine at Boston University who leads the New England Centenarian Study, which has followed centenarians and their family members since 1995. By age 100, it's roughly 50% genetic, he estimates, and by around 106, it's 75%. Knowing what enables some people to live very long lives has consequences for the rest of us. Continuing research into very old age may help provide insight that could eventually be used to develop drugs or identify lifestyle changes to help people live healthier for longer, says James Kirkland, president of the American Federation for Aging Research. Centenarians make up a growing share of the United States population. There are 109,000 centenarians living in the country in 2023, according to Census Bureau projections, up from about 65,000 10 years ago, thanks in part to decades of advances in medicine and public health. Despite a decline in life expectancy, which dropped to 76.4 in 2021, Pearls estimates that roughly 25% of the population has the genetic makeup that could get them to 100 if they also make consistent healthy choices. Not only do centenarians live longer, but data suggests they manage to avoid or delay age-related diseases like cancer, dementia, and cardiovascular disease longer than the general population. Among the New England Centenarian Study participants, 15% are escapers, or people with no demonstrable disease at the age of 100. Some 43% are delayers, those who didn't develop age-related disease until age 80 or after. Chuck Ullman, who is 97 and lives in a retirement community in Thousand Oaks, California, says he is free of health problems, aside from a sure, sore right shoulder from a recent electric biking accident, and has no desire to live in a, to a particular age. He hopes to live as long as he feels good and can do the things he loves, such as woodworking, attending political discussion groups, and getting dinner with some of his many friends. There are 350 residents here, and I have 350 friends, Omen says, of his community. He also spends time with Betty, his wife of 77 years. My objective is to enjoy each and every day that comes along. Researchers have identified some genes and combinations of them that are associated with longevity, such as the presence of a variant of what's known as the apolipoprotein E gene called E2, a trait thought to help protect against Alzheimer's. They emphasize each trait is a small piece in a large, complicated puzzle, which can factor in socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, and climate. Living past 100 requires a combination of many genetic variants, each with a relatively modest effect, says Pearls. Gene variants that offer protective qualities, such as repairing DNA damage, are especially beneficial, he says. People who are curious about how long they might live should start by looking at their family histories. Your relative lifespans are one of the strongest predictors of longevity, says Pearls. Omen, the 97-year-old, says his mother lived to 90. If multiple members of your family 
have lived into very advanced age, you've potentially won a much greater chance of having purchased the right lottery ticket, says Pearls. Neurologist Dr. Claudia Kawas has been tracking the habits of the oldest old, those older than 90, in Southern California since 2003 as part of a study at the University of California, Irvine. She and a team of researchers have found links between longevity and even short amounts of exercise, social activities such as going to church, and moderate caffeine and alcohol intake. Superagers, or people over the age of 80 whose cognitive abilities are on par with those 20 or 30 years younger, reported having more warm, trusting, high-quality relationships with other people than cognitively normal participants, according to investigators at Northwestern University. Keeping in good relationships could be one key to lifespan, says Amanda Cook-Maher, a neuropsychologist at the University of Michigan and lead author of the study. Your outlook also matters. Harvard researchers identified a leak between optimism and longer lifespans in women across racial and ethnic groups. Among the study participants, the 25% who were the most optimistic had a greater likelihood of living beyond 90 years than the least optimistic 25%. According to a 2022 study published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, Janine Case, 100, she, she has taken a glass half full approach to life. She plans to outlive her colon and skin cancers and keep enjoying swing music and Mexican food as long as she feels physically and mentally well. And a day in her life can include walking a mile, conversing with her writing group, or gnashing on fish tacos with friends. The Irvine, California resident has always exercised, but also enjoys indulgences like cheesecake and lemon bars. I try not to let stress bother me, she says. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.